constantly hear people that are Calvinists harp on this. They just keep repeating it, and they repeat it so much you start to think it's a biblical truth. of Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus said, I can't. I'm dead. <laughs> That's not what he did. Lazarus came out. So you mean to tell me a dead person can respond to the command of Christ? take lessons from Judas White and Jeff Durbin. It shows in this kind of sequential format and Do you really believe that it parallels the method of exegesis that we utilize to demonstrate those other things? Um, no. <laughs> Calvinists, even pastors, very openly smoke pipes and cigars just as they drink beer and wine. Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief. And you need to realize that he's gone from predeterminism. Now he's speaking of some kind of middle knowledge that God now has to. I deny and categorically deny middle knowledge. Don't uh, beg the question that would demand me to force you to embrace it. You're not always talking about necessarily God choosing something for no apparent reason, but you're choosing that meat because it's a favorable meat. There's a reason to have the choice of that meat. underground bunker deep beneath the faculty cafeteria in New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, safe from all those moderate Calvinists, Dave Hunt fans, and those who have read and reread George Bryson's book, we are Radio Free Geneva, broadcasting the truth about God's freedom to save for his own eternal glory. And greetings, welcome to The Dividing Line. Radio Free Geneva, if you have not heard before, is a special version of the program we do where initially we were responding to some of the worst uh, arguments against Reformed theology, and then we started taking on some of the best arguments, and now it's just simply anything that has to do with Reformed theology, if we're going to provide a response to it, we roll them all together and... That way we get to uh, listen to the Radio Free Geneva theme, which uh, a lot of people really, really, really enjoy. So there you go. That's uh, that's what Radio Free Geneva is about. Today we are brought together uh, as uh, the official theologian for Skillet. I, I got my shirt. Uh, uh, Josh made that for me and then had a fellow, I think, named David Smith actually do the printing or something. Um, I am the official theologian for Skillet, so... 
and they were just uh, nominated uh, for a couple of Grammys or Doves or something uh, for their last album. So, yay, you may have seen John Cooper on with me just a few weeks ago here on the program. Anyways, uh, today on the program, we are brought together by William Lane Craig, Leighton Flowers, and J.D. Greer. Interesting mixture of folks uh, to bring us together for Radio Free Geneva. The first uh, up, of course, is uh, William Lane Craig. And it is interesting to note that uh, Dr. Craig, in years past, I don't... I, I... I think he really put out an effort to avoid becoming bogged down in the morass of theology. Um, theology was just something that he had to deal with outside of the area of his true passion and expertise, and that is philosophy. But I, I don't know what training he has in the original languages, in exegesis, um, in any of the, the things that are necessary to really engage in that particular subject. But anyways, he, over the past number of years, has been doing stuff on the historical Jesus and uh, the Doctrine of the Atonement, and and uh, now has weighed in on um, Romans chapter 9. And of course, as, uh, as most people know, uh, Dr. Craig, even though he is not a Roman Catholic, uh, is not exactly on board with the Reformation and certain aspects of, of the Reformation. Um, we know, for example, he doesn't mind calling himself a neo-Apollinarian, um, so he holds to an uh, unorthodox view of the person of Christ, a form of Apollinarianism. Uh, so he's not concerned about what people would think about that. Um, when he debated Shabir Ali, he pretty well threw original sin under the bus. And so he really feels the freedom to chart his own course, shall we say. And uh, that means we have the right to shine a light on the, ch the charting of that, uh, of that course as well. And that's what we're doing here. So uh, last week sometime, uh, this video surfaced. It's not an overly long video, but it is his uh, explanation of how he deals with uh, Romans chapter 9. Everybody sent it to me as soon as it came out, of course, and uh, so no one is overly shocked whatsoever that we are doing a program uh, specifically in response uh, to it. So let's uh, take a look at what Dr. Craig had to say. Oh, it's almost nine minutes long. Um, I will be starting and stopping, uh, obviously, as we comment upon it. But here is Dr. Craig on Romans 9. What does it actually teach? Now, someone might say, but doesn't Romans 9 teach that human beings are completely inert in the process of salvation? Uh, immediately, we are reminded of the fact that um, Dr. Craig's uh, depth of understanding of Reformed theology or his willingness to actually listen to Reformed theology have been questioned more than once. Um, to say completely inert, if, if what that means is, does Romans 9 te teach monergism? Well, then, obviously. Um, but we, have, we need to emphasize very strongly that mankind is not inert. Uh, mankind is in rebellion. Mankind is in active rebellion. Mankind is anything but inert in the spiritual realm. He is, well, just 
just look at all the lists that the Apostle Paul provides of all the things that mankind is doing. His heart isn't a factory of idols. Though made in the image of God, he is is incessantly worshiping, but worshiping the created order rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And so uh, if, if you're going to use the term man being inert, then what you need to do is to say that man is inert in being able to do anything to position himself for salvation, to contribute to his salvation, to initiate a process of salvation, whatever else it might be. Um, That requires grace, that requires freedom from slavery to sin, all the associated things that the Bible very plainly uh, presents to us. That it belongs entirely to God's will, who is elect and who is reprobate and left. Uh, Agreed. A very excellent uh, summary. It is completely of God. Completely of God. Um, There is only one autonomous will in the universe, and it's God's. And so to try to turn man into the autonomous decider of all things is really what you end up with in Molinism, where because of middle knowledge, which has knowledge of what creatures who have not been decreed to be made would do in any given situation, takes away from God the right to create, well, to to do what God says he does when he speaks to Moses, says, hey, um, when when Moses is saying, let's bring Aaron along, Uh, Aaron's a better speaker than I am, I'm sort of slow of tongue. What does God say? I made your tongue. I made your tongue to be the way that it is. I made you to be the way you are. I made Aaron to be the way that Aaron is. In other words, those things that define those persons is a part of God's decree, but not middle knowledge. Uh, Person X will do what person X does in any given situation apart from God's decree to create them. So God's freedom is fundamentally denied at that point in that system. And uh, that's just one of the many, many problems that comes up in Molinism. Unsaved. Doesn't Romans 9 teach a strong doctrine of predestination and irresistible grace that excludes any sort of human role in terms of a free response, such as I have suggested? Yes, of course, we would agree that 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 is the case. Um, And so we would expect that uh, Dr. Craig is going to attempt to Um, change the uh, context in which we find Romans 9, because remember, Romans 9 comes right after Romans 8. We have spent a great deal of time over the past two years on Romans 8 on this program, especially in response um, to the provisionist perspective and Dr. David Allen and others who have attempted to find some mechanism, some way of getting around what Romans chapter 8 actually says not only in its um, assertion of predestination election, the golden chain, but then the perfection of the work of Christ in behalf of God's elect. No one can bring a charge against God's elect because God's the one who justifies. The son is the one who intercedes. Um, It's all, it is indeed all of God. And that is the issue. Um, Fundamentally, the issue is between, is it, is it something that God accomplishes perfectly to his own glory, or is it something that he makes available and tries to accomplish in cooperation with the will of man? 
Um, in Molinism, it gets a lot more com complicated because you have to have all these possible worlds and all the rest of that kind of stuff that you got to throw in there. But it, it still remains the same fundamentally at the, at the end is God's dependency upon mankind to allow the system to work up to the point, the maximum point that God allows it to, uh, God wants it to be, how many people get saved, how much evil there is, so on and so forth, is all a function of the nature of man, not a function of the nature of God. Well, I'd like to suggest for your consideration a very different reading of Romans 9 than the one that we so often hear. Typically, people think of Romans 9 as God's narrowing down the scope of election to just those few people that he wants to save. Now, um, I'm going to go ahead and say that Reformed people are somewhat responsible for this straw man description that Dr. Craig just gave. Because there does, especially, especially if you join Reformed theology with a pessimistic eschatology, it's easy to emphasize the um, narrow way, few there are that find it, um, perspective, and the smallness of the elect. That, unfortunately, is always within the context of what we see in our own experiences at a particular point in time. Um, but the fact is that when you listen to the promises, the, the promise to Abram is that his seed, his seed is going to be like the sand of the sea, um, as the stars of the heaven, that it is a, a great crowd, it is a, 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 a number that no one can, can number. And so... Um, I mean, that, that is found in a, in a great deal of Reformed uh, theology, Reformed writing, because it's biblical, because you ha there, there's always that tension there. Part of the tension is mankind as a whole goes this direction. Man, the, the tendency of mankind is to do this. You have to have God's grace for mankind to go this direction. That's, that's, that's a given almost anywhere. But uh, this idea of a narrowing down of God's grace, that is, that is not a part of Reformed theology. It's just the opposite. Any meaningful um, covenant theologian will talk about the, the wideness in God's mercy in that the decreed mechanism by which the elect are brought into their relationship with their head is through the gospel going to all nations. And so that, that gospel going out to the Gentiles and over the past 2,000 years going around the world is not something that caught God by surprise. It's not a second, second plan. Uh, it was what God intended from the start. So there is a, a, a massive widening numerically in the gospel going out to all people. So to describe it as a narrowing is to completely miss... Uh, because it is being used in a numerical sense. Um, how else would there, would there be narrowing, given that the gospel is going out to Jew and Gentile, that it is Jew and Gentile, that together, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must, must gather them, make them one, one flock, one shepherd. Uh, what's that all about? That's not, that's not narrowing. Uh, 
And yet, John chapter 10 is one of the most predestinarian chapters in, in all of the text of Scripture. And yet, you have it in that context. So, interesting that it would be expressed the way that it is. He passes over the broad mass of humanity to selectively save those few that he has picked out. So, again, the an erroneous limitation. So, so immediately you've got a straw man element here uh, that, again, you know, it's it's Doctor Craig who's entering into these areas. Um, you know, when Norman Geisler wrote uh, "Chosen but Free." Um, I wasn't the only one. Well, maybe I was. <laughs> but I know I tried while he was still writing it to um, encourage him to do more reading and to listen to what Reformed people were saying and, and to recognize certain aspects of that. And I, I failed uh, to get him to do that. But that failure wasn't on my part. Um, Dr. Geisler did not believe that he could learn theological truth from anyone younger than himself. That was just, that was just, a, that's a given. Um, and so I was too young uh, for him to take me seriously. It does, didn't matter what I had to say or what I had studied or hadn't studied. That was, I consider that a, a flaw in, in Dr. Geisler's thinking, not a flaw in my attempting to get him to think. But anyways, same thing with Dr. Craig. Um, my experience over the years in responding with Dr. Craig is he doesn't seem to have any, well, almost any respect for Reformed people, and so doesn't seem to read widely in, in even historically Reformed sources. Um, from Calvin onward, the Westminster Divines, um, any of the great uh, Princeton theologians uh, who have addressed so many of these things so brilliantly and, and so in-depth over the years. Um, and that leads to, I think, this fundamental misdefinition from the start, which will be relevant to how he finally tries to deal with Romans 9. I want to suggest that Paul's burden in Romans 9 is exactly the opposite. What Paul wants to do here is to broaden the scope of salvation, not to narrow it down to a select few. Now, I would simply point out that what we, what we need here is a contextually consistent exegesis. What we need to do is to recognize that chapter divisions are not inspired. Therefore, we need to reach back into Romans chapter 8. We need to see that there is a clear subject shift at the beginning of what we call chapter 9. But it is brought on by the fact that the end of chapter 8 results in this huge exclamation of worship and praise and, and, and everything else in regards to what God has done in Christ Jesus. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? That's the language. And that's why neither famine or nakedness or peril or any powers that have been created or will be created or ever heaven, earth, under the sea, he, he, he compasses the universe to say that because God is accomplishing his purpose in his elect people in Christ Jesus, there's nothing in this created universe that can keep him from accomplishing what it is he desires to accomplish. 
And so uh, that then is the immediate context. You end with the praise at the end of chapter uh, 8 for what God has done. And then in chapter 9, you have a shift to the answering of a specific objection to what has just been given to us in chapter 8. And that is, if this is true, then why do so few Jews believe the message that you are proclaiming? Why are they the primary people trying to kill Paul? Why are they the ones following him from city to city to gainsay what it is he was saying? There has to be an explanation for all of this. Why is Paul one of the small remnant that is embracing Jesus as the Messiah? And why is he then bringing this message outside of that narrow confine to the broader context of the Gentiles? Why is any of this happening? And that's where you get the transitionary statement in Romans chapter 9. They are not all of Israel who are of Israel. Just because you are a genetic, you're genetically related to Abraham does not mean that you're his child. There is something else. And from the beginning, God has exercised his sovereign choice. And that's what he illustrates. He illustrates it with the twins. He before they had been born, before they had ever done good or evil, so that God's purpose and election might stand, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. It was a reversal of the normative relationship. And what was it about? God's purpose and election. That was what Romans 8 was about. That was central to that theme. It's God's purpose and election. That's what you've got in the prologue to the epistle to the Ephesians. God's purpose. This is what the early church believed in. It was part of their very language. And so, uh, in light of that, then, Paul gives examples of the fact that God has been sovereign in reserving for himself a certain people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's, he's going to specifically cite that passage in uh, Romans chapter 11. But he goes through uh, the twins, and he goes through uh, Esau, and he, he goes through the, the, the Pharaoh. Even though he destroys the Pharaoh, he uses the Pharaoh to his honor and glory. And so there is a specific objection that is being addressed by the apostle that he had faced himself. We need to hear exegesis from the text, not it is plausible, it is possible, maybe this, maybe that. That's not dealing with the text in an appropriate fashion. So we need something more than that wants to broaden it as wide as possible. You see the problematic that Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 concerns Jewish persons who think that because of their Jewish ethnicity they have a sort of leg up on salvation with God. Those who were ethnically Jewish found it unthinkable that God would reject his chosen people, Israel, and instead allow these execrable Gentiles to go into the kingdom of God rather than 
his own people. How God could prefer over the Jews these Gentile dogs and save them and pass over the Jews was just unthinkable for these Jewish people. There's there's an element of truth here. Um, that's the whole point of why the illustrations are given that are given, and that is specifically the reality that God had always exercised divine election, that it was never a matter of simple genetic relationship uh, of what your DNA is. There was always the freedom of God to bring people to himself on his own basis. You could not demand anything of God. So none of this so far is actually relevant to the real issue. Um, We just need to keep our eye on the ball and see where uh, the shot goes wide, shall we say. So what Paul wants to emphasize in Romans 9 is God's sovereignty in electing and saving whomever he wants, regardless of their ethnic background. Whether Jew or Gentile, it is God's choice as to who will be saved. Now, that sounds Reformed. That sounds very Reformed. It isn't, because behind that is the Molinistic running of the future possibilities and stuff like that. But he has to recognize that Romans 9 then takes us into chapter 10 and 11, where the whole Jewish-Gentile situation and the proclamation that it's by faith, no matter who you are, is presented. So what he's saying is God has the freedom to save Jews and Gentiles. That much is true. Um, But once you get down to and therefore, does he have an, a specific elect people? That's where the division takes place. So, you notice at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul expresses his anguish concerning those Israelites to whom all the promises of the Old Covenant belong that are not believers in Christ. He says in verse 6, that it is not as though God's word had failed. Rather, he says, that not everyone who is descended from Israel belongs to Israel. Not everybody is a real child of Abraham just because they are his physical descendant. Just because you are ethnically Jewish doesn't mean that you have some sort of a favored status with God. Rather, as Paul illustrates with the story of Jacob and Esau, God has the freedom to choose whom he wills to be saved. Just being descended from Abraham physically is no guarantee. So, in verses 6 to 24, Paul says God is free to save whomever he wants, and that no one can call into question God's choice. No one has the right to talk back to God. No one has the right to say that God has to prefer his own people, Israel, over these Gentiles. If God wants to broaden the scope of salvation, 
to include Gentiles in addition to and even instead of his chosen people, the ethnic Jews, then no one can talk back to God. It is God who has mercy upon whom he has mercy and has compassion upon whom he has compassion. So, here is the key question. Okay, so up to this point, we're sitting there going, well, yeah, it sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Um, the, you know, so when does the other shoe drop? Uh, or given how hot it is right now, uh, I guess yesterday we set a, a new record at Death Valley at 130 degrees. Um, you know, it really makes you wonder if God isn't saying, you know, scorching fires and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, uh, wake up. California, hello. Um, but anyway, um, you, you would, you would, we're just waiting right now uh, for the other shoe to drop because we, we know that if you were to take what was just said to its logical conclusion, then God has an elect people that he has chosen from eternity past that is completely unworthy. There's nothing that they do in and of themselves. They're not choice meats. Um, they, 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 they aren't uh, able to do what the Bible specifically says mankind outside of grace is not capable of doing. Uh, something's going to have to add. So how, how are we going to get around this? Well, that's, that's where the other shoe or sandal, as it is in the heat right now is going to drop. Who is it then, according to Romans 9, that God has chosen to elect if it is not those who are ethnically Jewish? The answer is those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Those are the ones that he has chosen to elect and save. And so in verse 30, he writes, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued the righteousness, which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith, but as if it were based on works. Okay, so... Um, a tremendous passage, one that we use all the time in dealing with people who are attempting to insert works righteousness. Um, but Romans nine thirty through thirty two comes after Romans nine six through twenty four, and then some fulfillment passages thereafter. So are we really suggesting that the key to the interpretation of what comes before isn't provided until much later in the text? Why, why is it upside down? It, it's similar to when Norman Geisler goes to John 640 and inserts his understanding of what that means, and that then has to determine what John 637 means. Shouldn't 37 come before 40? Uh, doesn't the first part of Romans 9 come before this part of Romans 9? And, of course, there is an assumption concerning the nature of faith and, and everything else that is related here, 
Romans 9, 30 and 32 is coming after Paul has now completed his demonstration that they are not all Israel who are Israel. And so it's it's getting ready. It's actually the the, the transitionary section into chapter 10. But what is being done here is Craig is trying to say, well, yes, God is free to save who he wants, but the condition of that being saved is autonomous faith, which in Molinism um, allows for the freedom of the will, does not require regeneration, uh, so man can be autonomous, and God is still saving who he wants, but the want is really the result of the combination of whatever uh, choice God has made as to what his goal is. Maximum number of people saved, uh, maximum number of people saved in light of minimalization of evil or any combination of possible things. He doesn't want to really commit himself on that, though you can tell sort of where he's going in his thinking. Um, but that's where God's choice is. God's choice is not personal. Non-reformed understandings of salvation are impersonal. They are involve potentiality, making man savable, creating nameless, faceless groups that mankind fills in by his actions, whether it's just faith and repentance or just faith, maybe no repentance, uh, or longer lists of actions and sacramental systems, whatever it might be. But it's impersonal. It's, it's creating... Um, groups that then are filled by our action. The the thing that can't be from a synergistic perspective um, is that God has chosen a particular people, therefore their resurrection of spiritual life, their, their being indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, their adoption or forgiveness, everything comes from His hand and His hand only, even though they were very much in opposition to God and to his ways, justly under his condemnation. They were not choice meats. Uh, they, they were not the righteous. They become the righteous because that's the mechanism he uses to conform them to the image of Christ, but he provides a way to do that. It is not what draws his favor to them. It is not what makes them um, who they are. And so... This is, instead of walking through the text, some of us can walk through Romans chapter 9 and start at the beginning and go verse by verse and make the argument. Notice that what has happened here is after recognizing, you know, pretty much through verse 6, 7 and the rest has been skipped. There's been, it's not even touched. And instead, now you're going to jump into the, Another section, read it back into this. Well, it must have been talking about that because, well, that's that's what we've got, right? So, so what God has done is that He has decided to save all those who have faith in Christ Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. It is those who have faith in Christ Jesus whom God has elected. So, 
here's the key issue again, very, very plain. This is, you're going to find this with everybody. In Craig's perspective, man has the capacity. Even though this is chapter 9, chapter 8 starts off with Paul saying that those who are according to the flesh cannot do what is pleasing to God. They cannot submit themselves to the law of God. They do not have that capacity. Believing and repenting is pleasing to God. Romans chapter 8 said they can't do what's pleasing to God, but Craig and any synergistic system simply does not have a consistently biblical anthropology. They, they take any type of positive reference and just ignore the straightforward man is not able texts. That's just, that's, that's what you have to do. You, you, can't, you cannot maintain a free will perspective. Um, without that kind of a, of, of, a, of a maneuver. And so that's what you have here. So man is able to freely choose in of himself, specifically by... And of course, within Molinism, whether man is going to believe or not is dependent upon the circumstances in which he's placed, which God places him in those circumstances. But there are some people that doesn't matter what circumstance you're going to put them in, they're never going to believe. I guess there are other people, it doesn't matter what circumstances, they'll always believe. And then you've got the people in the middle, and God places them depending on, depending on whether he wants to get them saved or not. So, so it would almost seem at that point that he would have to put everyone who could possibly be saved into the context that they could be saved. But maybe there's just not enough worlds to do that. I don't know. Uh, this, that kind of speculative stuff to try to turn man into the deciding factor and wherever this middle knowledge came from, uh, it... it it creates real havoc. Therefore, given God's sovereign choice, ethnically Jewish people cannot... Com- now, now, sovereign choice to save in a particular fashion, not sovereign choice of individuals. Big, big difference. If God has preferred to save certain Gentiles over certain Jewish persons... This is all based upon the principle of faith that Paul explains back in Romans 3 and 4. Okay, so, so there's, there's, part of the, there's part of the idea. There we go. <laughs> uh, Rich, is, Rich is not with us right now. He's, uh, he's, he's what? Oh, he's talking to our, our, our internet provider, which doesn't allow us to do live internet broadcasting these days. Um, uh, just simply by not giving us a reliable signal, uh, which is why we're having to record this. But um, hear, hear what he's saying. When he says God has chosen, what God has chosen is not individuals. God has chosen to save those who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. So there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a category out there and you f- you put yourself in it so so we it's important to hear what he was saying before it sounded reformed because it was based upon what was being said in Romans chapter 9 but it's not because you're redefining the terms and you have a, an external category an external framework that you're putting all this in to try to maintain the autonomy of man with respect to Abraham himself So, in Romans 3, verses 21 and following, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. Beautiful text, irrelevant to Romans 9, in context. (laughs) I mean, if you have to cut the text of Romans up into little parts like like puzzle pieces and move them around, that should say something to you. Why is it that you can pick up commentaries by Reformed men and start with Romans 1 and work your way all the way through following the argument as it builds upon itself, as Paul takes a side issue here, a side thing there, but he's always going the same direction. How come Romans makes sense going straight through it But then other people have to go, well, what you really need to do is we need to uh, skip over Romans 9, 7 and following that specifically says it wasn't because of what people did. It wasn't because whether they did something good or bad. It wasn't because of their righteousness or their good deeds. It it was completely God's freedom. uh, And it was personal in their experience. It wasn't just categories. And God is the potter. And, and, and skip over the fact that there is the, that the objection, the very objection Paul responds to. Well, who resists his will? Who are you, O oh man? How can you pretend, I'll just be honest here, how can you pretend to put a video out in Romans chapter 9 and never even mention that? Never even talk about it. Never even say, well, what is this objection really saying? Why, why would Paul think that someone would object to his perspective in this way? Instead, you're spending all your time going back to talking about justification, Romans chapter 3. That wasn't Paul's, that wasn't the way Paul went through. Everything, everything here is absolutely true, but it does not explain what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 9. Because the objection is you go through chapter 3, you go through chapter 4, you're justified by faith, by grace, it's not by works of the law, it's not by circumcision, uh, there's, there's only, there can be only one body, that's Romans 5, he goes through something I, at least when he debated, Shabir Ali didn't seem to believe, Romans chapter 5's discussion of the federal headship of Adam, our fall in Adam, the corruption of our nature, uh, all the rest of those things, he, he goes through the, the experience of the believer in Romans 6 and 7 in regards to sin and the mastery of sin, and we've died to sin, and therefore we've been re- re- released from its slavery into chapter 8 and the freedom of the sons of God. But at the beginning of chapter 8, the discussion very clearly and importantly of our inability outside of Christ to be able to do any of these things. We have to be in the spirit, not in the flesh, etc., etc., Then you've got the explanation. This all builds up to God has done all of this. He is behind all of this. It is a part of what he has predestined from eternity past, and that's what makes it certain and sure. 
And then having said all of that, chapter 9, okay, then why are you in the minority of the old covenant people? Why do most Jews re- reject what it is you're saying? And Paul then demonstrates that God has always had an elect people. He has always exercised his freedom, even within the, the very founding family of the tribes of Israel. He was free to choose Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. It's right there. How can you deal with Romans 9? By quoting from Romans 3, which is talking about a completely different issue, and skip over. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. Why Why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? Who are you, oh man? What if God, willing to, with patience, bear vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I I mean, if you want to call that dealing with Romans 9, okay. It almost seems to me like you're just assuming that people are going to believe whatever you have to say, and they're not going to read Romans 9 for themselves. Because if they do, they're going to go, but you didn't actually read the actual important stuff. It's, It's like it's not even there. Well, maybe in the minute and five seconds he has left, he'll cover all of that. In verse 27, Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Then he asks specifically, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith and the uncircumcised through their faith. So it is through faith that one becomes a true child of Abraham and a member of that elect body that will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. It has nothing to do with Romans 9, however. <laughs> just, that, that's the amazing part. I, um, let, let, me just, let me just remind everybody, if, if, it's, if it's been a little while since you, since you looked at it, remember, Paul talks about the great sorrow and unceasing grief he has in his heart that he himself could wish to be anathema, a curse separated from Christ for the sake of his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of his sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service of the promises, um, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Uh, that's the great privileges that the people of Israel have. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Here's the objection. This is the objection of, of, of Romans 9. This, this is not what he's talking about in Romans 3. Romans 3 has a completely different context, a completely different set of objections. In fact, Romans 3 is then going to lead into Romans 4 and the assertion of what justification is apart from works and imputed righteousness is. That, that's a different realm that we're dealing with there. Related? Yes, because it's how God saves his elect people. But it's not talking about the existence of an elect people, which comes later. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's what people are saying. Paul, if you're right, then God's word has failed. 
The Jewish people are not are not believing in mass. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So there is a true Israel. And who who are those true Israelites? The, the choice meets, that's Leighton Flowers, that's, that's provisionalism, that's Pelagianism. The choice meets, the good people. They've got better hearts. But if you recognize just how completely unbiblical that is, then you can hear when Paul quotes from the Elijah incident, I have reserved for myself, not they reserved themselves, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is a lima, a remnant, that God reserves for himself. That is his sovereign freedom. So how does he, how does he bear this out? And why does the next, do the next verses appear nowhere in an almost nine-minute video from William Lane Craig about Romans chapter 9 when they are the very essence of Romans chapter 9? Because that was a categorical recontextualization of Romans 9, not an exegesis of Romans 9. Sound familiar? Not the first time we've experienced this. <laughs> no. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. God's choice to limit the fulfillment of his promises. In that context, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh or children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. Nothing here about faith. Nothing here about foreseen faith. Nothing here about uh, this is all determined on the basis of your faith. You will have faith as a result of this. They've reversed it. That's why they had to skip this, go to the end of Romans 9, and then jump six chapters back to a completely different topic as if that is an explanation of Romans chapter 9. So, um, the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of the promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, so they had not, there is no faith, there is no choice meets. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad. Good or bad. So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Now remember, for William Lane Craig, for the provisionalists, for all synergists, God's choice is only about methodology. It's not about who. It's only God can choose that if you believe, you go into group A. If you don't believe, you go into group B. That's the, that's the extent of his choice. There's nothing more. We have far more range of choice than God does in that system. But is that what choice is here? So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. How does it get any clearer than to say, not because of works, not because of what someone is doing, but rather because of him who calls. Uk ex ergon, not from what mankind does. Al ek tu kaluntas, but from the one calling. How can it be any clearer than this? And yet all of man's systems have to reverse that order. All of man's systems have to say, the calling of God is universal, but it is ex ergon whether it is your activity, because, see, this isn't, this isn't works of law here. Because this is contrasting simple human activity versus divine activity. So we're not talking, we're not doing the justification ergon here, works of, works of law. It is not of human activity, but of the one calling. Because what, what's his point? The twins weren't born, they hadn't done anything good or bad. This isn't Mosaic law. This isn't justification. You try to you you start confusing these terms. You're never going to get a handle on what's going on. It's not of what mankind does. It is of the one calling. Therefore, it was said to her, "The older will serve the younger." Just as written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Personal, isn't it? You can say, well, Jacob represents Israel and Esau represents the Edomites. But it started off with a very personal human reality, didn't it? God had the right to choose Jacob before Esau took a breath of air. That was God's sovereign right. That's what people don't like. That's what people don't like. Now, if you think that is not how it should be interpreted, then why does verse 14 say, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So, whatever your interpretation of verse 13 is, does it result in someone objecting to God's justice? If it doesn't, then you probably didn't interpret verse 13 correctly, right? Because that's what Paul immediately turns to. He immediately turns to the justice of God. And he says, May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will mercy whomever I mercy, and I will compassion whomever I compassion. They are verbs in Greek. We only have nouns, substantives that we turn into verbal phrases, have compassion on, have mercy on. But they're active verbs. Mercy and compassion are not demanded of God. For God to be just and holy is what is required for God to be God. To be compassionate and merciful and gracious is to show the full range of his character. But see, people get lost and confused. Because we know God is love, and if you start from that perspective, 
and try to work backwards, you will end up sacrificing his holiness. Only if you start with what he started with in his own revelation, you know, like flooding the earth. That's why a lot of people don't believe it, because they read the Bible backwards. But God started with certain basic revelations of who he is, and that's what makes it so beautiful to see who he is, his mercy and his love and his compassion become beautiful only when they are kept in the biblical balance that is presented in Scripture with his holiness and his wrath against sin. That's what makes them deep. That was, that's what makes them beautiful. I will mercy whom I mercy. I will compassion whom I compassion. So then, so then, it, does, it is not of the willing one, Neither the running one, the one trying to do something, but the mercying God. Therefore, it is not of the willing one. That's the end of provisionalism right there. That's it. It's done. It is directly contradicted by Scripture. It is not of the willing one. That's what they say it is. It's all of the willing one. That's what William Lane Craig just said. It's all of the willing one. No. It is not the one willing. Neither of the one trekantas, the one running, the one engaging activity, the one trying to earn something from God. Nope. But to eleontas theu, the mercying God. It is all of God's mercy. It's not a mixture. It's not God's mercy makes the categories, and then we fill in the willing and the running. No. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason, I raised you up that in you, my power might be demonstrated and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. The whole reason that Pharaoh was where he was had nothing to do with something called middle knowledge. He was placed there so that God would demonstrate his power in the destruction of Pharaoh. So then, what does it say? Verse 18. So then, he mercies whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. There's no way around the language. There's no way to play games and come up with allegorogesis or anagesis, analogesis. <laughs> Find some way of trying to get around it. It's straightforward. He has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. It's his desire. It's his desire. Thelai does not mean anything other than he wishes. So he has mercy on whom he wishes, and he hardens whom he wishes. That had to do with an individual. There were some Egyptians who did come out of Egypt. So it's not just a race thing in any way, shape, or form. It's God's freedom. So as soon as he says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will. Again, 
if your interpretation of Romans 9 does not result in the objections that Paul himself anticipates, then you're missing Romans chapter 9. You're missing the apostle. A lot of people miss the apostle. Paul's response, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Paul's answer is found in the fact that God is our creator and he can do with his creation as he sees fit. As he sees fit. We are the thing molded. God has the right to mold us as he sees fit. And so, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And by the way, before you jump off into some other uses of, of the potter and clay analogy, listen to Paul's application first, because his, applica- his, his specific in-the-language application is to purposes. Have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. That's God's freedom. So before you run off to repentance issues in Jeremiah or whatever else it might be, you've got to listen. What does it mean to make a vessel for honorable use, another for common use, from the same lump? Who has the right to do that? Because then he explains, what if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Prepared for destruction. People try to get around that one, too. But in context, and we've dealt with this many, many times before, there's been various uh, really tricky Greek ways to try to look at, uh, at the participle there and try to get away from the idea that God prepares certain vessels for destruction. The reason that people don't like that is actually found at the beginning of the verse, what they don't like, what mankind finds terrifying, is that God would be willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. There are people who will just look you straight in the eye and say, if that's how God is, I'll never worship him. And my response is, that's right. That's exactly what the word says. Not only is that exactly what it says about him, it's exactly what it says about you. Exactly what it says about you. Yeah. So, I hope you're hearing me when I say, how can you pretend to have dealt with Romans chapter 9 when you didn't read a word of what I just read. You didn't deal with a single objection that Paul raised to his own position. Instead, you skipped it all, read part of the transition into the next chapter, and then jumped six chapters back. All to create an artificial context that allows you to skip over the hard words. How do you do that? I. But that's why we have Radio Free Geneva. Oh, goodness. I, mm. I, I'm just so thankful to be able to just open the text and just walk through it. 
You might say, that's because you're just a simple person. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. But, wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right, thankfully, thankfully, um, Leighton Flowers' thing, and I can't really blow this up because it was only 480. If I blow it up, it's going to get all fuzzy-wuzzy. So it was, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think he just does it on his phone or something. I, I don't know. I mean, I'll go ahead and there you go. So there it is. It's one minute. My, my sincere congratulations to Leighton Flowers. I, he had to have taken some kind of sedative or something. <laughs> to have gotten a one, and it's, it's exact. I mean, right here, it's it one Zero, zero. Spot on. Leighton, congratulations, sir. I think you must be taking some classes or you're in a in group therapy or something for all those three-hour videos. But, um, hi. Hi, I'm Leighton. And I can't make videos under two and a half hours long. <laughs> hi, Leighton. We can't either. Uh, YouTube has banned us all. Yeah. <laughs> Long video makers anonymous, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh, anyhow. So here is Leighton Flowers on predestination. You ready? Here we go. Predestination can be broken down into two basic parts pre destination, which simply means that the destination has been predecided. But for whom has the destination been predecided? God has decided beforehand the destination of those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. He has not predestined who will and won't follow Jesus. All of us are held responsible for God's word because we're actually able to respond to the truth of God's word. We can either accept the truth so as to be set free, or if we suppress it, we may grow hardened to that truth and eventually cut off from the light of God's word. God does not predestine who will and won't believe in Jesus. Predestination does not mean that God has faded the eternal destiny of everyone before they're even born. This type of theistic fatalism can lead to a victimhood mentality where people believe they ultimately have no responsibility in the light of God's word. Okay, there you go. Uh, there's what? Well, of course you did. Well, yeah, but he's still. Hey, I'm not. I'm not taking anything. Look, we've got to give Leighton all Leighton can get. I mean, you know. I mean, this is this is what the man does. Uh, and so we've we just we just don't want to. <clears throat> they dumped you. You you're 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 online with with Cox, and they dumped you. Yeah, that's. I'm not expecting that customer service is going to get any better in the future. That's that's my concern. Um, Venezuela, here we come. How do I feel about carrier pigeons? What, what are we going to do? Start, start, because I've got, you know, like, like this is a jump drive right here. Yeah, this, this is a jump drive right here. I'm not sure how big this one is. Um, but it's, uh, we just may have to start doing massive production of these and then carrier pigeons. And then just have it fly over your house and, and then you can watch that. <laughs> yeah, Venezuela, here we come. Yeah, it's exciting. Anyways, okay, so there's there's what uh, <clears throat> what Brother Layton has to say, and you'll notice that he didn't say much about predestination. 
what he talked about was what predestination can't possibly mean. Um, and that we have the, the, the ability uh, to do things. Um, even though, at one point, he actually uses similar language to John chapter 8, where Jesus, for Leighton, we have the ability to respond to the message and free ourselves. Jesus said, the Son has to set you free. That's one of the many, many major differences between biblical theology and that of Soteriology 101. But let's look at, if we could, uh, the use of the term praorizo. Praorizo. Uh, there is a total of two, four, six utilizations in the New Testament. I noticed just looking at all of them here, they're all either aorist finite verbs or aorist participles, which is uh, interesting. One, an active participle, and one, a passive participle, just glancing over them here. But let's look at them in order, and let's see if the idea, and this is something that Leighton has said many times before, predestination just simply means, and we talked about this and we played his comments on the webcast, uh, I don't know, about a month or so ago, um, that the destination is determined, but whether you're going to get on the plane or not is up to you. So, you know, some of you may have noticed <laughs> uh, I was in Arkansas over the weekend, ha- had a great time there. Folks down in Arkansas are r- real kind, very nice to you. Um, but I didn't have an enjoyable trip coming back. I was supposed to get home at 6.55 p.m. I got home at about 2.50 a.m. So there was about an eight-hour delay, which included a lot of running around from pillar to post and terminal to terminal and gate to gate. And, yeah, it it was a lot of fun. The idea was, you know, I was stuck at Dallas, they just had a bunch of massive storms came in, and it wasn't their fault. I, my, my wife, I can now announce, <laughs> since she has lost her job, thanks to the great panic of 2020. Uh, one of the reasons I've never really talked about what she did and stuff uh, was because of the company that she worked for for almost a quarter of a century uh, is American Airlines. And, well, it was America West, then it was U.S. Airway, Airways, then American Airlines. Everyone's going to be merging with everybody eventually, except for Southwest, because they just don't want to do that with anybody. Um, but uh, anyway, it wasn't. So, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm what's called a spouse. I know what they're going through. I know that they are under tremendous amount of stress when massive thunderstorms come into DFW, and they're shipping planes off other places and landing them other places and having to get them refueled and, and trying to shuffle all the crews. And, you know, so there's a lot of the people don't understand all that, and they get really mad at the gate agents. Never do that, folks. The gate agents, do not, they're just standing there. They have no control over nothing. Give them a break, please. In fact, little hint here, if you're nice to them, you get treated a lot better than if you're not. So anyways, we're running around all, all sorts of different places, and it was a long trip back. But the idea is, I'm stuck at DFW, and there's Flight 153, and they, they keep saying, it's going to Phoenix. It gets delayed another hour, delayed another hour, delayed another hour, moved to another gate, blah, 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 blah. But it's predestined to go to Phoenix. I thought it was predestined to be canceled, to be honest with you. Um, 
But somehow it made it. And like I said, we got in uh, just before, I don't know, 2.45. I forget when it was. It was ridiculous. I got to bed around 3.15, so maybe it's 2.15. I don't know. It was long time. There wasn't anybody around. Let's put it that way. If I had wanted to eat at the airport, there wasn't anything to eat at the airport at that point, at that point in time. So, but the idea is predestined. But whether I got on, because there were some people who gave up. You know, I was given the option uh, because I still have my flight status. I won't for long, but I still have my flight status, not because of her, but because I'm executive platinum. The, the, the help desk said, would you just like to go tomorrow morning and go find a hotel room or something like that? I could have chosen not to get on flight 153, but flight 153 was predestined to go to Phoenix, Arizona from DFW. Okay, that's the idea. There's, there's your idea of predestination. Let's see if that fits with what we have in Scripture. There's only six passages to look at, right? So, Acts 4.28. Oh, I just preached on this a few weeks ago at Apologia. You might want to look up that particular uh, sermon. But here, the early church, upon experiencing persecution... Looks to the Old Testament, looks to Psalm 2, says, ah, fulfillment. They're opposing the Son and His reigning over them. And then they talk about the nations. They define the nations for us. They talk about Pilate and Herod and the Romans and the Jews. And they're all gathered together against God's holy servant Jesus. To do what? Acts 4.28. To do whatever your hand and your will predestined to take place. Predestined to take place. So what was predestined? The events that led to Jesus' crucifixion. The actions of human beings, of Pilate, of Herod, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers according to Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand, that's God's direct activity, your hand and your will predestined to take place. That's the prayer of the early church. That's the inspired word of Scripture, Acts 4.28. That's not a plane is predestined to go to Phoenix. That is God actively working in time to accomplish his purpose to do what he has predestined to take place. And that included the free actions of men. They are subject to and the result of the exercise of power. What is your hand? What, how, how is that always used in the Old Testament? Your hand is not shortened. Your arm is not shortened. You have the power. You have the ability to accomplish. Your hand and your will predestined to occur. Acts 4.28. Next, Romans 8.29, the golden chain of redemption. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. So, I think Leighton would say, see here, here what you have here is that the destination of believers in Jesus is to be conformed to the image of his son. How does he insert believers in Jesus there? Because he'd look at foreknown, he would say God knew that they would believe. 
Actually, what he does with foreknown is this really strange thing. The, the people that God knew in the past, even though that, that destroys everything in Romans 8, just, just sets it on its head, I think that's how he tries to get around this. But the reality is that it's two verses. It's repeated twice. It's 29 and 30. So, those whom God chooses to enter into relationship with, pra-egno, he predestines to be conformed the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. These are the elect, God's elect, those who are chosen. I mean, we could expand this, ver- this list of verses greatly if we included choosing election. We're just looking at predestination right now. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. So notice that in 29, exact same Greek verb, praordison, it's the aorist. It's just simply a statement of an act of predestination. So in 29, if you say that the emphasis is on the goal which is just everyone who believes will be made like Jesus, then you're going to, you break the, the chain up. Because those whom he foreknew, personal, he predestined, still personal, to be conformed to the image of the Son. There's nothing more personal than the shaping of the elect to be like Jesus, so that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. Is calling personal? Of course it is, because it's powerful. This actually accomplished something, because those whom he calls, these he also justified. Now, how is a person justified in Scripture? Well, Romans 3, 4, 5, having been justified by faith. So the calling of God has to result in what? Our faith. But you see, this is all about what God does. And man-centered systems start with man, and so they limit what God can do. The Bible starts with what God does and fits everything in under that, which is highly important. So, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. These are all things that God does in direct parallel. Can't break it. You can try. You can't break it. This is God's self-glorifying action. And merely the idea of a destination doesn't fit, hasn't fit in any of the three that we've looked at so far. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 2 7. So it's a little bit different. Um, but we are speaking uh, from God a, a wisdom in the mystery that has been, that has been revealed, the, the having been revealed mystery, which God predestined before the ages unto our glory. So there is a, this, now we're talking about, remember what 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is about. 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross, foolishness, um, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, it's by his doing that you're in Christ Jesus, sovereignty, 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 all over 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you start getting into the natural man, can't understand the things, the spirit of God, etc., etc. And so now we have the, the, the mystery of God's wisdom, which has been revealed, which God 
predestined before the ages for our glory. So here, again, it's active. Remember the, his hand and his will. Here, God predestines to accomplish something. Here, the object of predestination is not persons or the elect. It is the message of the cross. It is this mystery of the body, Jews and Gentiles together, Christ, the wisdom of God, even though from the world's perspective, such foolishness. God has predestined this to happen. So there is a active act of predestination, and the result is the message itself and the fact that that is to our glory. Our glory. That's what it says. Our glory. Because we are the ones who are the mercied recipients of that tremendous message. There's only two more. Ephesians 1.5 Having predestined us unto adoption through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now Ephesians 1.4 of course said before the foundation of the world. You have numerous terms here, but here predestination is used. The direct object is us. If I recall correctly, uh, Leighton threw a word in here. Let me, since it's only a minute long, uh, let me go back to where he had um, Ephesians 1 up. Yeah, let, let, let's see what it says here. The destination has been predecided. But for whom has the destination been predecided? God has decided beforehand the destination of those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. He has okay, there you go. Those who are in Christ Jesus by faith are predestined to a particular location. They are predestined to a, a particular result as a result of being in Christ Jesus by faith. Okay? So, compare that with Ephesians 1.4, and what it says. Because again, what you have here is man-centeredness, God-centeredness, one has to turn the text upside down. Just as he chose us, not just as we chose him, that's backwards, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Not because we are holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved one. When does belief show up? Well, uh, it's down here in verse... There it is, verse 12. Well, verse 12... Uh, we we are the first to hope in Christ, and then verse thirteen believed in Christ. So once again, you have to turn everything upside down, change the order. The Holy Spirit evidently couldn't get things in the right order, and read this back in instead of just reading it just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption. Predestined us. Not predestined adoption 
as the result of anyone who believes. That's a different sentence, my friends. You need to think this through, because this is very, very common. This is how people get around the words of Scripture, by saying that what it's actually saying, he predestined adoption as the result of those who will freely believe in him. It's not the same sentence, not the same meaning. You can't get that out of, out of Ephesians 1.5. Just, it's not there. It's not there. But that's what people will attempt to do. And then the same, the same uh, text has the, has the last util- utilization of the term in verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So, in whom we have obtained the inheritance. How do we obtain the inheritance? Having been predestined according to his purpose. Um, there you go. Uh, that's, that's the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. What a, what a tremendous promise that is. Uh, that is given that is given to us in Ephesians 1:11. Now, is that commensurate with the simplistic the airplanes going to a certain place? Um, because the having been predestined is the we who have obtained inheritance. So, I would assume the assumption would be, well, all he's saying is, is that those who believe who receive an inheritance, he's predestining. Um, well, that doesn't make any sense, because having been predestined according to his purpose, works all things after the counsel of his will, is us. So you can't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. When you try to come up with a definition for predestination that limits God's freedom, that makes God less free than we are, you're always going to end up with a mess. You're always going to end up with a mess. So there you go. What does predestination look like? Well, we just looked at all of them. And um, there's much more we could look at. One last thing. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a brief article. I just wanted to comment on it. And even though I just grabbed it today, I think it was from February. I seem to recall seeing that. Well, wait a minute. Let me uh, click on it here. Uh, I actually have a, have a link that I can, I can bring it up if... Wow, we are having problems. Yeah, February 22nd, 2018, uh, at Church Leaders. And this is J.D. Greer, the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention who got another year, thanks to the Great Panic of 2020. I still, honestly, as an outsider, just go, how did that happen? What, why, why was that allowed to happen? That, no, that shouldn't have, no. Hmm. Anyway, J.D. Greer... Um, heresy can be what you believe, but perhaps just as often heresy is the weight you give an issue you believe. If you give a certain issue too much weight, you will become a fundamentalist Christian. Now, I'm not sure how those two sentences even relate to one another. How did you go from heresy to you will become a fundamentalist Christian? 
Fundamentalism might be understood in part as too much weight given to certain aspects of Christian doctrine or practice. The word fundamentalism historically doesn't mean that, but in common parlance, that is how it might be understood. Well, okay, the, the, the term has a historical meaning, but yes, especially today, independent fundamentalist Baptist, that term fundamentalist has the meaning that there are certain things that, that all things, really the meaning for fundamentalism today is that all things are equally important. So if you differ from them at any point, you are out of the kingdom. So the Trinity is no less or no more important than the pre-trib rapture to many of these folks. Or pantsuits on women, or where you go swimming, or especially um, style of music. Oh, goodness. You know, you don't want that African beat. That's just as important as the Trinity. So the, the real problem with fundamentalism is a complete lack of being able to order beliefs in any meaningful fashion to where what is core and definitional is at the center. Everything's at the center. Everything's at the center. So it's not just a weight issue. Everything gets the same weight. That's the problem. That's the problem. Anyway, under don't be a fundamentalist Christian, some people give such enormous weight to minor issues that the gospel itself is obscured. Well, that's, that's true. Very true in a lot of fundamentalism today. That's, that's true. Calvinism is one such issue where, where, I suppose it's a person, can be prone to being a fundamentalist Christian. Um, maybe. Uh, actually, Reformed theology has freed a lot of people from uh, the, the kind of fundamentalism that uh, elevates secondary and tertiary issues to gospel-derived issues by focusing people upon what the actual gospel itself really is. We only have so much bandwidth as a church, so I choose rather to be known for the gospel than for a tough stance on particulars of Calvinism that are less important than the heart of the message. Well, what exactly would that be, Dr. Greer, is what I'd like to know. Is the sovereignty of God less? Is it, which is not part, which is not at the heart of the message? That God is sovereign over his creation? That man is dead in his sin? That God's grace is free? That the atonement actually saves? That, that the Spirit of God actually needs to raise us to... Uh, to spiritual life, that we are secure in Christ Jesus because it, the Son has come to do the will of the Father, which one of these is like pantsuits or a rock beat? Because those seems to be the things that they're always talking about whenever I see the IFB preacher clips, uh, is, is, is that. So at the Summit Church, I often say, Calvinism is not an issue to me until it becomes one to you. But when it becomes one to you, it becomes one to me, and I'll probably take whatever side you are not. What? What? What does that mean? What someone believes about the finer points of Calvinism is not usually the issue. Finer points of Calvinism. What are the finer points? Are we talking infralapsarianism versus superlapsarianism? Are we talking about covenant theology issues between Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists? What are we, what are we, are we even talking about Calvinism at that point? 
It's how they believe it. We may have trouble achieving absolute clarity together on every one of the five points, but we can be absolutely clear on the fact that the Bible condemns a divisive and uncharitable spirit over something about which gospel-loving Christians have, have historically had trouble finding complete agreement. Okay. Um, why do I get the feeling that it's only the Calvinists here? Why, aren't, why isn't there anything about Arminians? Why isn't there anything about free willers? Why isn't there anything about the opposite of these things? In Martin Luther's preface to his commentary to the Romans, he pointed out that God unfolded the doctrines of election in Romans 9, not Romans 1. Luther says the doctrine of election was intended to explain why Romans 1 through 8 worked like they did, not function as the only gateway for believing the gospel of Romans 1 through 8. Many Calvinists have, practically speaking, moved the doctrine of election from Romans 9 to Romans 1, making it the only door through which you can really believe the gospel. This is as bad as what we were just looking at. Um, Luther is right that the substance of the proclamation of the gospel comes first for Paul. Well, actually, it's the substance of human sin that comes first. That starts in Romans 1.18. And he's right that Romans 8 and 9 is the explanation as to why Romans 1 through 8, first part of the chapter, actually works. But that means it's foundational. That, that means that with... Are we really saying that the Holy Spirit of God revealed this stuff, but we shouldn't really be overly, overly concerned about it, so much so that you can take the opposite view of somebody? It sounded like what he was saying. Maybe it was just really badly expressed. I don't know. I don't know. But moved the doctrine of election from Romans 9 to Romans 1, making it the only door through which you can really believe the gospel. Well, every church has to make the decision as to whether you're going to preach part of Romans or all of Romans. And Paul gave us all of Romans. And I'm not sure if you want to read Luther's commentary of the Romans without reading his debate with Erasmus on the bondage of the will. <laughs> I noticed bondage of the will didn't get quoted here, because I could give you some humdingers from Martin Luther on that particular subject. Because even as he said to Erasmus, you alone of all my opponents have put your finger on the hinge upon which it all turns. The Reformation, which was the issue of the human will. That was the same Luther. That was the same Luther. Don't hear me encouraging some kind of doctrinal reductionism. We should think deeply about election as with all great biblical truths and form deep convictions about it. Then how can you take different positions? I didn't get that. Everything in the Bible is important, especially things related to salvation and evangelism. I have my own convictions, but we must learn to be comfortable with certain scriptural tensions and live with grace and freedom in some places God has not bestowed clarity to the degree we prefer. As Alistair McGrath says, the ability to live within scriptural tensions is a sign of maturity, not immaturity. Well, yeah, but are, are you saying that the... Are you saying that differences in understanding within the church are these tensions? Because, see, I, I went to Fuller. Tension was the term used at Fuller for contradictions. So whenever I hear someone talking about tensions, I'm like, what are you really trying to say? And I'm really not sure. Half the time, I'm really not sure what J.D. Greer is saying. I, I really wish he'd be much clearer. 
Supposedly, Deuteronomy 29, 29 was John Calvin's favorite verse. I'm not sure. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. According to that verse, God has chosen to keep certain truths hidden from us. But every single point of the doctrines of grace is a point of revelation, not hidden from us. Most systematic theologians, myself included, don't like the concept of hidden things. As a guy who minored in math in college, I want to resolve all tensions, remove all mysteries, try to bring every hidden thing to light. Moses prophesies our failure and tells us sometimes we need to rest content with the revelation we have going no farther than God has gone, which can mean pulling back from putting as fine a point on something, particularly as it relates to setting boundaries for fellowship, as we might typically like. But that's not... I, I don't see... Okay, let's put it this way. In my experience... Churches that decide that on key issues such as does the death of Christ actually save those for whom it is made, or does it simply make men savable? Churches that allow either answer to that question end up dividing eventually. They end up dividing eventually. Just be upfront, have a statement of faith. Explain it. But when it... And if someone wants to go to a different church, God bless them. God bless you. But are we saying that this is not a part of the revelation as to whether that's that's what Scripture is teaching? I'm going to be preaching about this on uh, Sunday. Apologia. This is what my sermon is on. I'm second part of the Sermon on the Atonement. I did uh, Romans 8 last time, and I'm going to do the Hebrews passages. Uh, this time around. Furthermore, we should never allow our theological system to ignore or explain away the plain teaching of certain segments of Scripture. That's for sure. God gave us every word of the Bible in exactly the form He wanted us to have it. Yep. If God had wanted us to value a theological system more than the Bible, then He would have spelled out that system in greater detail for us. Okay. But does that mean, as is normally the application, is that the revelation of Scripture is not consistent with itself. That's normally how I hear this being used. Charles Spurgeon, a confessedly Calvinistic preacher, yes, he was. But he was not a systematic theologian. And anyone who's read him knows that. Just keep that in mind. Once remarked after reading Romans 10, 13, Dear me, whosoever shall call, whosoever. Why, that is a Methodist word, is it not? At this point, many Calvinists would have gone on to explain why that verse doesn't really mean what it looks like it says. But Spurgeon went on to say, The whole truth is neither here nor there, neither in this system nor that. Be it ours to know what is scriptural in all systems and to receive it. Yeah. What's that supposed to mean? Why is that the last? Well, actually, it's not the last. I'll I'll go to the next one. Um, I was actually going to try to read the whole thing, but it it goes um, way too long. Um, Perhaps it is more than a little ironic, considering the tone of the conversation today, that John Calvin himself wanted to be known as the ecumenical reformer. If you study Calvin's life, you see he had no desire to start a sect of Calvinists. That's true. He wanted the truths of God's grace to influence all evangelical preaching. In fact, in his institutes, he never lists out the five points of Calvinism, of course. There's some debate as to whether he even believed in limited atonement as usually presented today, though I personally believe that he did. I'd agree. 
So unemphatic was his treatment of it, but not unemphatic was his treatment of the results of the atonement. That's a different thing. Uh, the point is, he would never have said Calvinism is the gospel. Well, not in those words, but this is, this is historical anachronism. This is historical anachronism. He, he would have probably burned anyone who used the term Calvinism. He would never want his name attached to anything. But the point is, we're now talking about what he did make central to his proclamation of the gospel. And so I want to know which, which parts are dismissible. That, that's, what I, that's what I would like to know. He was zealous, I believe, to see God's glory above all, God's priority in salvation, God's sovereignty over all things, especially his church, and God's guarantee of his people's salvation. As my Calvinist friend Andy Davis says, Calvin would hate the name Calvinist and would be annoyed by the vast majority of Calvinists today. That's true. He would be. But that, doesn't, that does not change the reality that I'm not seeing how, or I'm not seeing if J.D. Greer sees that it is Reformed theology that protects the freedom of God, the deadness of man, and hence the central aspects of atonement, justification, and righteousness. It's a Reformed understanding of Paul and James that balances works, and faith. Th th these are vital issues. And it's not fundamentalist to point these things out. It's actually protecting the church from either downgrade or division. The gospel, not the five points of Calvinism, is the center of our faith. This assumes that when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about man's deadness and sin. The man's deadness and sin is not part of the gospel. The definition of sin isn't part of the gospel. Um, how man believes, regeneration, the atonement, the, the act of grace, this is not part of the gospel. The fact that Jesus says that he will not lose none of those, or give, that's not part of the gospel? Once you make these divisions... You have so reduced the gospel that I'm not sure you could define it anymore because you're afraid to get into any of the controversial areas. If you believe in the loftiness of God's glory, that salvation belongs only to God and that God is sovereign over the world and that, and that he that has begun a good work, you receive it through, then you, can I, you and I can stand in alignment even if we parse some of the particulars differently. I, I anyway, I I really prefer straightforward stuff personally. I, I, I like just you know come straight out with it. Come straight out of it. Anyway, um so there's Radio Free Geneva for today. Uh we're gonna do our best by Thursday to have functional internet again. Um because I really don't want to do this for the 30th anniversary of uh, of our first debate. Uh, just up and down, up and down, crash, crash, crash. We're going to do our best. Uh, but it's sort of out of our hands. Because we're sending them. Once it leaves here, it's in good shape. It's where it's going from there that who knows. So, Lord willing, we will see you on Thursday for our 30th 
year celebration of the beginning of our uh, debating ministry. And until then, God bless. We'll see you then.